Thank you for joining New Life Fellowship Podcast today. We are a church desiring to expand the kingdom of God by making disciples. We pray that this message inspires you, build your faith, and hope that it will give you perspective to see that our God is moving in your life. Hope you enjoy the message. Hey, well, good morning, church. Uh, welcome to New Life Fellowship. Uh, my name is Eric No. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I just have the privilege of bringing you, uh, bringing you God's word today. Um, Hey, you know what? I, uh, my wife and I just had our second son. Uh, his name is Ezekiel. Yeah, I know. Um, it's pretty crazy. Uh, last week, I was actually supposed to close out our series in Devoted because we're at the last. We've been going through this for 10 weeks now. Isn't that crazy? But we're at our 10th and final sermon. I was supposed to preach it last week, uh, but wasn't able to because... Uh, well, we had a kid and, uh, you know, we had to be in the hospital for that. And so, uh, but yeah, we, we needed to finish it off. So I decided to come back today and, and to preach it and to um, um, and really just give you God's word today. But, you know, today's sermon is really kind of a vision uh, passage for us. It, it's really directing us and gearing us for next year and in the years to come. And so I'm going to be talking about a host of different things today. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, different aspects to this sermon, um, but they all coalesce together in really stating to you, like, what what, are, what does New Life want to be about next year and in the years to come? Uh, and I think this passage in Matthew chapter 28 really gives us a, a clear vision of where New Life wants to go into the future. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up. Uh, Matthew chapter chapter 28, uh, we're going to look at verses 16 to 20, uh, Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 16 to 20, uh, and if you're able to, if, you're, if you can rise at this time as we read God's word together, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, this is a very, very famous passage, so uh, you know if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this preached or at least read uh, a half a dozen times, um, but, but for us today, I hope that this is informative for us as a church as we move into the future. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 uh, to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you, God, for this passage. We thank you for your direction, your vision, and your calling upon new life as a church. Lord, we pray that uh, as we mature, Lord, would you multiply us, would you grow us, and would you give us, Lord, a life in abundance and health. Uh, Lord, we thank you, God, for this time. May your Holy Spirit be present with us, uh, really giving insight into your word. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated now. Um, uh, you know, as I mentioned, my wife just gave birth. Our, our son's name is Ezekiel. He's our second born. And, um, you know, one of the things that uh, you may have heard because uh, we, re- we did release this in the newsletter was my son was born four weeks early. We didn't uh, plan for him to come a little bit early. And so uh, everything is fine. He's good. But he did have to stay in the NICU, which stands for Neonatal uh, Intensive Care Unit, uh, just because he's a little early. And um, they wanted to see him do a-, a few things before he left the hospital that would make them feel comfortable and whatnot. So he's still there. He'll be there for a few weeks, but nothing crazy, nothing bad is going on. Just they need to observe him for a little bit longer. But what was interesting to me is one of the things that they wanted to observe about him um, was not only that he would eat, because uh, he needs uh, to eat a certain amount of milk, and if, if he can't bottle feed that, they, they, they kind of run a tube down his nose and into his stomach. They kind of put that milk down his, um, uh, into him that way. 
But the other thing they wanted to see was not only for him to eat, but they want to see him gain weight. Because uh, he was born five pounds, two ounces. Uh, when a baby is born, they usually lose some weight. So he went back down to about four pounds, like 13 ounces. Um, but now he's been kind of slowly working his way back up, and they want him to gain weight. They want him to increase in size, basically. And I thought this was interesting because the health of a baby or the health of a human being is actually judged by how it grows. And I think that's so pertinent for us today. I know this is something that happened in my life, but I thought it was so fitting for our sermon today. You know, for the church in all of its history, when it's grown, it's been healthy. Not, I'm not saying all mega churches are healthy. I'm not saying all churches that grow are healthy, but I'm saying one of the signs that a church is healthy is when it actually multiplies. You see, in essence, this devoted series has been a series on the health of the church. What does a healthy church look like? Right? A healthy church looks like when it's in God's word. A healthy church should be in prayer. A healthy church should be in communion and doing communion. A healthy church should be in community and loving one another. A healthy church should be praising God. A a healthy church should be generous. A healthy church should be filled with joy. A healthy church should be winning favor with all peoples, but a healthy church should also be multiplying itself. And this is found at the very end of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, where it says that the Lord was adding to the number day by day. You see, at the very early onset of the church, the church was designed to grow and to multiply. It was designed to increase. This is how Christianity went from being 120 people to now being billions of people worldwide. It's because it grew and it's supposed to grow. That's the natural trend that the church should see. And so churches that are not growing in some sense are unhealthy churches. They are churches that don't have much life in them. And you see, just as we would judge a baby by their growth, the same is true of the church. If the church is not growing and multiplying, it is actually an unhealthy church. Now, again, that does not mean that every mega church is a healthy church simply because of its size, but it does mean the opposite, which is if it's not growing, it's not healthy. Let me just show this to you. This is, this is biblical stuff. I'm not making it up. I'm not some pastor who wants to grow this church to be a mega church. That's not my point. My point is that we should be increasing and we should be multiplying ourselves, okay? Let me just run through these hosts of texts within the book of Acts, okay? Very, very quickly, but it will prove my point, right? Acts chapter 2, verses 41. This is right before Acts chapter 2, verses 42, which is where our whole series is based on. It says this, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's after Peter preaches a sermon, add 3,000 people, just like that. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 47, which is where our series is from, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, um, Acts chapter 5, verse 14, and, the, and more than ever believers were added to the, to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. Acts chapter 9, verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Uh, verse uh, 21 of chapter 11, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And then Acts chapter 12, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied, which basically means that more and more people started believing in the word of God. 
the church is designed to actually multiply and grow. And this is true throughout the Bible. Multiplication is something that is indicative of life. If you remember in Genesis, at the very start of our world, God places Adam and Eve into this garden and he says, be fruitful and multiply. When he takes the, uh, the, the Israelites out of Egypt and moves them I'm oh, sorry, when he takes uh, 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 Joseph and he moves them into Egypt, right, and they start to prosper there, what does it say? It says that they were fruitful and they multiplied. That's why the Egyptians ultimately ended up enslaving them because they were so fruitful and they were multiplying. They were bringing life, right? If you look at the book of Ezekiel, which is what my son is named after, God prophesies that all the Israelites will come back to Jerusalem and he says this line, you will be fruitful and you will multiply, why? Because anytime there is life, there is multiplication. Whenever something has health, it multiplies and it grows. At the very end of time, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 to 11, God paints for us this picture through, the, uh, through John's uh, prophecy. And he says, look what he says in verse 9. I, I put out 9 to 11, but I'll just read for you verse 9. After this, John says, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. I mean, how do you get a great multitude of people that you can't even count? If a church keeps shrinking, it's about multiplying and growing. It's what makes a church a healthy church. Where there is life, there is growth, and there is multiplication. And this is why one of the vision pieces for new life is that we do want to be a multiplying church. Sometime down the future, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not even a few years from now, but at some point in our history, in our future, we want to begin multiplying churches. We want to plant more churches. We want to work with networks where they plant more churches. We want to help with the multiplication of churches. On top of that, we want to multiply our community groups. On top of that, we want to multiply believers. We want to multiply uh, the amount of disciples that we have in this church. And this is really what I believe Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 28. It's to go and to make more disciples, to multiply them, to make them more and more. Because here's the goal. The goal is not to just add more bodies into this building. The goal is to actually make more disciples who love Jesus and do, are doing the things that Jesus has commanded them to do. And so today, what we want to talk about is, of course, we want to get to multiplying churches. We want to get to multiplying community groups. But it begins with this base uh, of bricks, right? And you are the bricks, right? You are this layer, this foundation. You are the disciples that will then build this building. And that's what we want to do. We want to multiply the bricks. We want to multiply the disciples that we have in this church. And what I want to share with you today is really how New Life will do that for you. Okay, because there's a responsibility that the church has to really disciple you. But also at the very end of the sermon, I'm going to challenge you that each and every single one of you should be working. If you are a healthy Christian, you should be multiplying yourself. You should be discipling someone else. And so in this sermon, it's kind of broken up into really two parts, but, uh, but it all, all kind of holds together. Is I, I, I want to tell you about how New Life will disciple you and then about how you should all be going out and discipling other people. Because this is kind of the circle that God is showing us in this passage about how you as individual people can begin becoming disciples and then making more disciples, okay? So I have four points. I know I haven't listed out my points yet, but here are my points, okay? The first point is simple multiplication. Okay, the second point is uh, multiplication through teaching. 
A third point is multiplication through community. And then the fourth point is going to be personal multiplication, okay? So simple multiplication, multiplication through teaching, community, and then personal multiplication, okay? And so this is all with the hopes of, if, if you want to kind of switch in that word of discipleship into mul- multiplication, that's what we're talking about here. How are we going to disciple you and make more disciples? And how are you going to go about now and disciple more people, okay? So let's jump into our first point, simple multiplication, okay? Um, you know, I've noticed this trend in my life and in people's lives as I talk to them, but we have this trend towards overcomplication. Do we not? We overcomplicate things, especially if you're like, if you like a girl or a guy right now, you're single, and you, you think a girl likes, and you start thinking about, oh, does this girl like me? Does she not? And you overcomplicate it, right? If you're a girl and you think a guy likes you, you start overcomplicating things. But even just in your wardrobes, right, in your closets, for so many of you, right, uh, if you look at your closets, your closets are overcomplicated. I can almost guarantee, okay, for most of you, maybe not all, but for most, I bet you you only wear about 20% of your closet. I bet you the 80%, the other 80% you rarely wear, you maybe wear once a year, twice a year, maybe once every three years, I'm not sure, but I bet you for most of you, you wear kind of maybe 20% of what your closet has. The other stuff is just overcomplication. It's just an over, unless you Marie Kondo'd your closet, you know, and you, you spark joy or whatever, right? And you cleaned out your thing, right? And it didn't bring you joy, so then you casted it out. But, but if you didn't Marie Kondo for most of you, right, 20% is all you wear. And here's how that happens, right? The reason why we overcomplicate our lives is because of this. We think there are good things that we should have, and they are good, in fact, right? Somebody told you, hey, man, you need this color scarf. You need a red scarf, a purple scarf, and a green scarf. And so then you get those things, and they're good things, but then you only really wear the red one, right? Uh, Somebody tells you you need black jeans, blue jeans, white jeans, so you buy all of them, but you really only wear the blue ones, right? Uh, You need white clothes, black clothes, yellow clothes, whatever, all kinds of clothes, right? And you end up buying all these good things. You think you need them, but then at the end of the day, you... You only have a few things that you actually really like to wear. There are certain priorities, in other words, that you have about your closet. Uh, For some of you, if you own homes uh, or if you have a garage, you know this too. Your garages are probably filled and overcomplicated. Stuff upon stuff that you don't even know that you have. You probably go through your garage and you find things that you never even remember that you bought at one point. But you have them. Because why? At some point, somebody said, hey, you know what, Bob? It'd be great for you to play tennis and lose some weight. And so you're like, that is a great idea. So you go and you buy tennis rackets, you buy the balls, you buy the shoes, you buy everything. And then you play for one week and then you forget, you're like, oh, I don't have enough time. And then somebody else comes to you and says, how about snowboarding? You're like, that's a great idea, snowboarding. Oh, how about golf? How about basketball? How about this? And you start buying all this stuff, you start biking. And, and then all of a sudden you start accumulating all this stuff that you have to then store in your garage and it overcomplicates your garage because all of this good stuff ends up complicating your life. Now, let me tell you, what happens to your closets and your garages is what happens to churches all the time. It happens to churches all the time, okay? There are a hundred great things that this church could do. Tomorrow, we could start a hundred different programs that would all be beneficial to everybody. Everyone would be like, man, that's such a great ministry, but I'm telling you that what will happen over time is churches become so complicated. There are a hundred different ministries, and and pastors don't have enough strength to attend to all the different ministries, so some of the ministries are dying, some of the ministries are doing better, and they're they're, they're just going nuts because they're trying to do all of these different ministries. Let me give you some examples of ministries that I've literally been a part of, okay? Throughout my Christian world, I've been a Christian for 35 years, okay? This is, this, okay? I was a part of a jujitsu ministry, okay? Great ministry idea. Wrestle with guys, get sweaty, 
bonding, right? You get to smell the other guy's armpit and throw him and talk about Jesus and pray, right? Great ministry idea. But again, it's good, but it overcomplicates things over time, right? I was a part of a biking ministry. I was a part of a hiking ministry. Uh, you know, uh, some of my old churches had revival nights, uh, multiple revival nights, like four revival nights a year. They would have conferences, retreats, life stage ministries for 20-somethings, 30-somethings, 40-somethings, young families, middle-aged families, old families, elderly ministry, all sorts of ministries, right? Uh, th- there was one church that I went to where they had a sewing class where you sew and you prayed, and that was beneficial. Like, they would sew and pray, and, and, and I'm sure that was very, very beneficial to a lot of people who wanted to do that. Right, there were, uh, there were different ministries where you know, some churches taught Hebrew and Greek as classes. and So many phenomenal ministries that we could talk about today. And yet what will happen over time is if we keep adding, 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 we'll become nothing. We'll have so many ministries that we'll never do any of them well. And so this is why, and, I, and I'm being you know, totally honest here, is a lot of people come up to me with great ideas. And I, and I continuously, you know, don't, don't stop those ideas, but, you know, a lot of people come to me with great ideas and, and great intentions, and, and I oftentimes I have to tell them, I'm so sorry, we, we, we can't do that ministry yet. We can't do that ministry right now. Why? Because we have priorities that we want to focus in on. There are certain priorities that we feel called to as a church, and we want to do those priorities really, really well. See, The thing about Jesus here is what's striking to me about this passage is that when Jesus talks about discipleship and making more disciples and multiplying disciples, notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say get everyone into their specific life stage where they have specific problems and specific things and then have them do it. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't overcomplicate. He doesn't say do jiu-jitsu ministry. He doesn't say Brazilian jiu-jitsu ministry. He doesn't say biking ministry, hiking ministry, sewing. He doesn't say any of these things. He makes it very clear and very simple what he wants us to do. He says, baptize and teach. That's it. Go and baptize and teach. In fact, uh, R.T. France, who is an Anglican priest and a New Testament scholar, says this, okay? He says, the sentence structure is of a main verb in the imperative, make disciples, which means that's the main verb, right? That's the main action is we got to make disciples, okay? He says, followed by two uncoordinated participles, baptizing, teaching. And then if you don't understand all of that, he kind of summarizes it at the end. He says this, which spell out the process of making disciples. See, a lot of people think Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20 is about missions. And it is, partly But more than missions, this passage is actually about discipleship. How do we make more disciples? And Jesus says, teaching and baptizing. That's it. And so throughout the rest of this time, uh, throughout the rest of our time, I want to share three things that new life will do, okay? We don't want to overcomplicate. We don't want to add a thousand ministries. We just want to do three things and do those three things really, really well. And I think it comes out in this passage, okay? The first thing is this, is teaching. And we will talk about this in a second. We want to teach, okay? And primarily that will happen on a Sunday basis, okay? I, I will take a whole week to, to study and to prepare, and our pastors will take a whole week to study and prepare and to give you a teaching that will help you to grow, okay? Uh, but also next year, we hope to roll out a few occasional classes, okay? We hope to roll out classes that we believe every Christian should know about, basic theology, how to read your Bible, how to pray, maybe some classes on certain books of the Bible. But whatever the case is, we, we do want to roll some of that out, but that's a peripheral type thing. Our main teaching will happen here on Sundays, okay? The second thing that we want to primarily accomplish uh, is, is through community groups, okay? Discipleship will primarily happen through community groups. And, and we will see in a second here how that comes out 
in this passage, but we believe that discipleship happens in community. And if you're not a part of a community group, if you're not a part of a small community where you're doing life on life, I'm telling you, we as a church cannot disciple you, okay? The, the third thing is you have to be able to disciple others. You have to be able to serve and disciple others, and that is all a part of you growing. In order for you to grow as a Christian, you actually have to be discipling other people, okay? So I'm, I'm going to break that down and talk about that, okay? But, but, but think about this, okay? This is our calling as a church, and we want to stick to this, and we're going to say no to a bunch of things, but, but think about it like this. This is a biblical concept. Think about the Apostle Paul's ministry, okay? The Apostle Paul was only called to two things. Do you know what those two things were? Preach to the Gentiles, plant churches. That's it. He wasn't called to start a sewing ministry. He wasn't called to start a tent making ministry, though he could have because he was a tent maker. He wasn't called to any of that. And so guess what? And some, you, some people would look at his ministry and say, you're racist, Paul, but he excluded the Jews. He was like, okay, that's not my ministry. I'm not gonna reach the Jews, but I'm gonna reach the Gentiles. That's what I'm gonna do because God has called me to it. He's like, Peter, James, and John, they got it. And guess what? That's what Peter, James, and John's ministry was. Peter, James, and John were in Jerusalem working with the Jerusalem churches with Jews. And they weren't racist. They were just, they were just called by God to work with the Jewish people in J Jerusalem uh, and to promote Christianity in that way. They were called to that. And they said no to a thousand other things that they could have done, but they did this one thing. Why? Because they were called. And in a similar way, this is what we feel called to as a church. We feel called to these three primary things, teaching, community, and then having you go out and make more disciples, okay? So let's walk through that one by one, okay? Uh, the, uh, so that leads us to our second point, multiplication through teaching, okay? Multiplication through teaching. One of the essential principles, one of the essential things we're going to do is teach you, okay? And uh, this is kind of uh, the philosophy behind the, our teaching, if you would, okay? There's really two ways that we want to teach you, okay? And that, that's kinda, that kind of comes through in this passage, okay? The first aspect is depth. We want to teach you deep, okay? But we also want to teach you with width, wide, very wide, okay? So deep and wide, and I'll explain that in, in just a second, okay? Look what Jesus says. This is, we're talking about depth right now, okay? He doesn't say, okay, teach people Christian doctrine, teach them the truths of Christianity, just teach them information, just give them information. He doesn't say that, right? He says, look what he says. He says, teach them to what? Observe. You know that word observe means to keep, means to guard, it actually means to do it. Teach people to do the word of God, don't just know it. And, and if you've been with me for a while now, you know that this is one of my primary emphases as a pastor. Is like, don't, like, don't just think like you need to know a lot as a Christian. Just you have to apply what you already know. If you did that, you'd be so much, you'd be so better off. And that's one of the things that we want to do as a church is we want to teach you deeply to observe that. And how are we going to do that? First of all, is by persuasively and by uh, persuasively engaging you with the gospel and getting it deep into your hearts to motivate you, to, to really get you stirred up about these truths, okay? But the second way is for us as pastors to actually live it out. In order for us to get you to observe the truth, we have to observe the truth first. We have to live this stuff out. And, and it's been my goal in my own life, and I know I, I still fall short of this all the time, but my goal in my life is to live these things out so that I can teach them to you. My goal with our pastors is to get them to live this stuff out. You know, our staff has uh, two, really only two staff values right now. We're, we're hoping to build out more and more as we go along. But I'm very simple, and I, I can't memorize too many things, but we have two values right now. One of them is simple. Okay? That's actually one of our values in our staff is to be simple. But our second one is this. It's devotion over duty. 
And what we've been telling our pastors every single week for the, like, the last three months, ever since we developed this, is this. Yes, you have a job to minister to people, but you also have a job to be devoted to Christ first. That's your primary job, is to be a child of God first. And to allow Christ to minister to you first, and then you can go ahead and minister to others. That's, that's our primary value here because we want our pastors to be observing these truths first so that then we can teach them to you, so that then you can see our lives as, a, as an example. Uh, you know, if you, uh, you know, for, for doctors, right, you, you can be a cancer doctor and you can actually have cancer and treat people with cancer. You can do that. But as a spiritual doctor, as a pastor, you cannot have spiritual cancer and then try to treat people with spiritual cancer. It's impossible. And that's why for pastors, we have to remain healthy. And that's what we've been trying to do with myself, with our staff. And our commitment to you is to live this stuff out that we're actually preaching and teaching to you. Now, of course, we're going to fail. Right? And I've told you, if you've been with us for a little bit, you know all my failures. I tell you about them very openly, and we will continue to fail. So do not use this as a means to attack us. Be like, hey, didn't you say, you know, like, have some grace and some mercy with us, right? Uh, we're, we're still sinners as well. But, but here's the point. We want to live this stuff out first. We, we have been working with our staff to give them more time. We, our staff works incredibly, incredibly hard, but at the same time, we've been creating little margin for them so that they can worship and pray, so that they can teach their kids, so that they can spend time with their wives and their husbands, so they can do these things so that they are healthy as well. We don't want people who just, we don't want pastors who just do the work of ministry. We want pastors who actually live this stuff out. And in our ministry and in our culture, isn't it so true that we value busyness, right? Think about it. Whenever you ask somebody, how, hey, how are you doing, Bob? How are you doing, Jimmy? Right? What do they say? Oh, I'm busy. I'm busy. Why? Because we value busyness. And this is what we value in our pastors sometimes. We want our pastors to be busy, 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 but we don't care that they're in God's word, and we do care about that. We want them to care. We don't want our pastors to simply be busy. We want them loving their families. We want them loving their kids and their wives and their husbands and all this sorts of stuff. We want them in prayer. We want them in their devotion. You know, if you're, if you're a man in here and you have a family, my, my encouragement to you is to not stay busy because it's easy as men to get busy. You know, I, like, I, I've talked to so many men who, who it's so easy for them to work 100 hours a week, but it's so hard for them to spend 40 hours with their family. I've talked to so many men, including myself, by the way. I throw myself right in this camp, right? We go on this family vacation together. We spend time as a family for a week, but then I need a vacation for my family because my family actually stresses me out more than my actual job. And sometimes I enjoy working more than I do spend time with my family. And so for you men, notice that. The Bible doesn't tell you to stay busy. The Bible actually tells you in Ephesians chapter 5, love your wives as Christ loved the church and to love your kids. It doesn't say stay busy. It doesn't say make yourself so busy that you have nothing else. It says to love your children and love your wives. Okay? So we want our pastors to live this stuff out. Okay? Now, if you're discipling somebody, okay? If you're discipling your kids, you're discipling somebody in your, in your small group or you're discipling somebody at your workplace, whatnot, here's some advice for you, okay? The best way for you to disciple is not for you to teach, but it's actually to show them. Look, especially for you parents, if you want your kids to, to show forgiveness to their friend at school who was bullying them or being mean to them, you have to first forgive your spouse. If your kids only see you fighting, okay, and they never see you forgiving one another, they will never learn forgiveness. You have to show them how to forgive each other first, okay? If you want them to be uh, unselfish and to share, then you have to be generous, 
You have to show them generosity and what that looks like. So much generosity that it actually hurts you. Uh, if you want them to be in prayer and reading God's word, then you have to be in prayer and reading God's word yourself. You can't expect your kids to do things that you, don't, that you, don't, you, you, you yourself are not doing. If you want them to be kind and to love their enemies at school, then you have to be kind and you have to love your enemies. If you want to disciple somebody else, it begins with you actually living this stuff out, okay? So that's depth. The second is width, okay? Look again at what Jesus says, okay? Jesus doesn't say to simply teach people to observe some of the truth. He says to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you to do. Everything. It means every facet of your life. You know, um, I was listening to a, a, a Tim Keller lecture uh, that he did at Westminster Theological Seminary. And he brought up this term called secularization. And basically what secularization is, it's our ability as modern people to separate and compartmentalize compartmentalize our lives. We have our public lives, we have our personal lives, we have our family lives, we have our work life, we have our friendship life, we have video gaming life, whatever. We have all these different kinds of lives and we segment them off. And what's been so difficult for modern people is for them to take their Christian life, which should cast over all those different areas, and to actually do that, is to have their Christianity influence their work, their friendships, their gaming life, their work life, their friendship life, all of these different aspects of their life. They have a hard time because of secularization. And in fact, Tim Keller, he talks about this NBC, um, NBC executive who uh, 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 basically converts. He, he becomes a Christian, and in an interview, uh, he's asked this question. He's asked, how will your conversion, okay, now that you're a Christian, affect your TV programming? And this is what the NBC executive said. He said this in an interview. He said, my Christian beliefs bring me joy, peace, and hope, and will not affect the way I do TV programming. And this is so indicative of our secular world, right? Where you compartmentalize everything. Here's my Christian faith. It's not going to touch my friendship. not going to touch the way I eat, work, or what I enjoy. But what we want to do here is we want to touch upon every aspect of your life. Christianity has no bounds. It will take up every aspect of your life. The way you make friends. What you watch on TV. What movies you decide to watch. What games you decide to play. Christianity has something to say about every facet of life. How do you treat your wife? How do you treat your kids? How do you work? How do you, uh, how do you spend your free time? How do you, uh, uh, all of these different facets of life, Christianity, Jesus has something to say about it. Why? Because Jesus wants not part of you. He wants all of you. And our job here, and one of the ways we will disciple you is to not just talk about Christianity, but to talk about your lives. And how does Christianity intersect with your dating life, your sex life, your personal life, your friendship life, all of these different aspects. And that's what we want to do here is we want to teach deeply, but we also want to teach widely. Okay? Discipleship is not just about going deep into the truths of obedience, but going wide and covering every aspect of life. Okay? This is why... Okay, Starting next week, we're going to start on the book of Philippians, okay? We're going to study the book of Philippians for nine weeks, and then after that, we're going to start on a topical series called Community, okay? We're going to talk about community. Why? Because Christianity, the gospel, has something to say about your friendships, about community, about how you treat one another, about all these sorts of things, and we want to touch upon those topics that are affecting your lives. And so we will go from expository preaching of going through a book of the Bible to preaching topically and covering all sorts of things because we want to go deep and wide as well, okay? Now, here's the icing on the cake, okay? In order for us to disciple you deep and wide, okay, we need you to be in the word of God. It's not enough, okay, that you eat an all-you-can-eat buffet on Sunday and then go hungry Monday to Saturday. You would die in reality, right? If you physically did that with your life, you came on Sundays and you ate an all-you-can-eat buffet and you went home on Monday and you ate nothing from Monday to Saturday, you would die as a human being, okay? 
And the same way with your Christian faith. You can't come on Sundays, eat the word of God, have an all-you-can-eat buffet, worship, eat, 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 and then expect that to carry you throughout the week. You have to be in the word of God daily for it to go deep and wide in your life, okay? That moves us to our third point, multiplication through community. Okay? When we think about discipleship, okay, we oftentimes think of discipleship as a one-on-one setting. Okay? But if you look at the life of, in the ministry of Jesus Christ, notice this. He never disciples people one-on-one. You notice that? There's actually only one time I can think about this. It's with Nicodemus at the night, at night, John chapter 3. He goes to Nic- Nicodemus, comes to him, and he talks to him. He disciples him one-on-one. But with his 11, 12 disciples, he disciples them in community. He disciples them all together. He tells them parables all together. He, he does this thing all together in community. In fact, if you look at the Great Commission passage, right, Matthew 28, look at verse 16 and 17 here with me, okay? Look at what, uh, look what it says. Now the 11 disciples, 11 because Judas, remember, he betrayed Jesus, fell away, he ends up killing himself, so there's only 11 now. Okay, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, Okay. All of the disciples were there. He was teaching them the Great Commission together, okay? But now look at 17. This is, this is very, very interesting to me, okay? And when they saw him, that's the disciples, that's the day, the disciples, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. He had been walking with these disciples for three years now, okay? 11 of them. Some of them worshiped, some of them were on top of the mountains with Jesus, some of them were on fire for Christ, and some doubted. And yet they were all there together in community, listening and worshiping and doing the stuff with Jesus. And this is why I'm pointing this out, because, look, whenever we do community, you get to go on a journey, not with people who are exactly like you in the same spiritual life as you, you go on this journey with all these different people, and that's what makes uh, community so special. See, some people think, you know what, community groups, that's for the low-level Christians. I want something more spiritual. Give me the deep Bible studies and the deep prayer ministries. Give me those things. I don't need community group. Community group for the low-level Christians. And then for some of you, you're like, you're new Christians, you're like, no, 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 the community group stuff is too high for me. Like, man, like, I'm, I'm, I'm such a weak Christian, like, I doubt, like, I don't know, like, you know, I just became a Christian, like, I don't know if this thing is for me, like, all these people have so much more experience, like, I don't, but here's the beauty of community, is that we get to do all, we get to all do it together, and that's what makes community so special, and yet, at the same time, so difficult. You know what I love hearing? I love hearing stories of complaints from community group members about other community group members. I love hearing complaints. And I'll explain why in a moment, because you're probably like, what, you, are you crazy? Like, why do you like hearing complaints? But here, let, let, me, let me give you some examples, okay, of some complaints that I've heard straight from our community groups, okay? Pastor Eric, they are so inconsistent. I come here week in and week out, but everybody else, they come whenever they feel like it. I'm here every week, slaving away, doing this stuff, man. It's so hard. Here's, here's another one, right? They never bring food. I always have to bring the food. I always have to buy the meal and pick it up and bring it hot and do all this. They never do anything. All right, here's another one. Pastor Eric, they're not spiritual enough. Everyone in my group, man, they don't read their Bibles. I'm the only one who's a real Christian, right? I can't spiritually grow. There's no one higher than me. I'm the highest, right, spiritually. So therefore, I can't grow, okay? Here's another one. Pastor Eric, they're on their phones when I'm sharing. I'm sharing my heart out. I'm trying to get this group to open up and be vulnerable. And I'm like starting first. And so I go vulnerable and deep. And Bob over there is on his phone, like typing away. I don't know to who. And he doesn't listen to me. I love this. 
I love hearing these complaints. And you know why I love hearing these complaints? It's because this is an opportunity for you to actually be a community, for actually for you to be the church. You see, here's what happens, right? You get to be patient, okay, when everyone else is inconsistent. You get to actually exercise that patience muscle and it actually grows in you. Okay, you actually get to be generous when you are the only one bringing the food and no one else does. You get, to, you get to actually exercise that muscle. You get to actually be the spiritual rock of the group for others so that they can grow. And you get to actually exercise that. Uh, you get to be kind even though other members of your group are being so inconsiderate. You get to actually work out that muscle of kindness. You get to be these things in the midst of it. And that's what makes community so special is that there are different people on different spiritual journeys all coexisting together and it makes it tough. Look, why do you, whoever said community would be easy? I think we have this like weird sense that, oh, as soon as I join a community group, it's going to be happy, joy, laughter, fun, whatever, deep sharing, vulnerability. No, 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 no. Jesus says, why does Jesus pray in John chapter 17 right before he dies for community? He says, he, he prays for a host of things, but at the very last thing, he focuses in upon the unity of the church. Why? Because it was going to be so easy? He knew that it would be so hard. He knew that it would be the one thing that would destroy us as a church, in fact. And so that's why he prays for unity, because that's the hardest thing. It's hard to stay together with people who are different than you. It's hard to stay together with people who don't have the same priorities as you. And yet this is why community will disciple you. And that's why you need to be in community groups. Look, community groups will never be well, maybe not never, but most of the time won't be a magical experience. It's not going to be like you're going to go there and you're going to have this revival experience and you're going to have tears coming out of your eyes. But that's what we want, don't we? We want the revivals. That's why people ask me, can we have a revival? Can we have a conference so I can weep tears and praise the Lord, hallelujah? And I'm like, well, that's great, but is that going to help you in the long run? Because where was that revival 10 years ago that you keep talking about? Where is it in your life now? And I'll tell you what, the only residual left of it is whatever they had that they were talking about in communities that people were actually keeping them accountable to. Community is what will drive our discipleship as a church. And so you see, we teach you deep, we teach you wide, and we expect you to be in community doing life together. And we're hoping that these things, we, we believe biblically that these things will disciple you into a deeper relationship with Christ. Okay? This leads us to our, third, uh, our fourth point, personal multiplication personal multiplication, okay? The two points, okay, prior to this one, multiplication through teaching and then multiplication through community, in a lot of ways, makes sense for a lot of us, okay? I think if you've grown up in church especially, right, you know, okay, gotta go to Sunday worship service, gotta be a part of small groups, gotta go to Sunday worship service, gotta be a part of small groups. And I think for a lot of us, that makes sense, okay? But this last piece is so important. Okay, if you notice in this great commission, right, Jesus is not telling all the churches to just do this discipleship thing. He's not telling all the spiritual elite people to do this discipleship thing. Where he's telling this to the 11, he's telling this to the 11 disciples, but he's actually telling it to all of us. That we all should be teaching, that we all should be evangelizing, that we should all be in some sense discipling another person. In fact, isn't that true in, in, in education? Isn't that what they say? The best way for you to learn is to actually teach. It's for, to, for you to actually learn it yourself and then to teach other people. And that's true of Christianity. Look, if you want to grow in your faith, it doesn't mean by you just consuming and eating the word of God, uh, going to community groups, receiving. It also means you discipling and serving other people. And whether that happens by serving here at New Life in our children's ministry, for example, they need disciplers who are discipling other kids. 
and toddlers, or through our youth ministry, which is happening right now. There are teachers across the street from us who are serving and discipling youth students, or even through our college ministry. I know Pastor Mingo has been looking for disciplers to disciple certain college students, or through leading a community group yourself, or, or by personally just investing in someone who's a peer or maybe a little bit younger than you, or somebody just personally at your workplace. Whatever the case is, okay? If you are a healthy Christian, the Bible tells us you multiply yourself. If you are not multiplying yourself, if you are not growing, if you are not discipling others, you are not a healthy Christian. Just as it is unhealthy for a baby to just stay the same size its whole life, it is unhealthy for a Christian to remain the same size in some sense. It's unhealthy for a Christian to just not influence and not disciple anybody else in their lives. A healthy Christian is one who is personally discipling other people. Now, here's the objection, okay? And I know, because this is the objection that I have for myself. But Pastor Eric, you don't understand. You don't want me to disciple other people. I'm jacked up, man. Like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I, I just started on this Christian journey. You want me to disciple other people? Like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I feel inadequate. I feel weak. Remember in Exodus chapter 3, this is exactly how Moses felt, right? God calls Moses. Moses is still fresh out of Egypt. He comes to this burning bush, and, and God says, Moses, I want, I want you to go to free my people. And he, and he literally says, who am I, Lord? Who am I? Like, like how are you going to use me? How are you going to do this? And here's the answer, okay? If you don't feel like you're ready to disciple, that's actually when you're ready to disciple. This is a paradox in Christianity, okay? If you feel ready to disciple people, then you're not ready. If you feel ready to disciple people, you're like, I got all the skills, man. I can disciple people. You're not ready. You know why? Because you're relying upon your own strength. When you say, I'm not ready, Lord, I don't know how to do this, that's when you're ready. You know why? Because you will actually do what Christ wants of you, which is to rely upon him and his Holy Spirit. If you say, okay, if you're one of those people who are like, dude, I've discipled 17 people in my life, man. I disciple people left and right, man. Boom, boom, boom. You know, look, I'm glad you've done that, but you know what you've effectively done is you've, discip you've discipled people to be just like you, which is arrogant and prideful. And that's why those people, they think they know how to disciple people. They disciple other people to be arrogant and prideful. That's why I hate discipleship programs, okay? Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I don't like discipleship programs because why? They think they formulaically created a pattern for discipleship. And yet what we need is the Spirit of God to work in us, through us, to do discipleship organically. That's why even if you've done one-to-one -one discipleship, which we have at our church, the best one-to-one -one discipleships are not ones that follow it programmatically. It's the ones that go off course and go organically. And the Spirit of God is just moving in that relationship. It's because you've said, you know what, I don't know all the answers. You know, even for me here, man, like, I'll tell you, like, especially in our first service and, and even here in our second service, I, I'm young. I, I'm only 34 years old, friends. I, I, next, in January, January 6th, I turn 35. You know, there's people in our first and in this service right now who are decades older than me. <laughs> A lot older than me. I mean, how am I supposed to disciple people? I think about that all the time, and it, and it troubles me. I'm like, huh? how am I supposed to tell this father how to disciple his teenager? I've never had a teenager. How am I supposed to tell, uh, you know, how to deal with uh, the death of their parents when I've never, I've never had to suffer through that? How do I minister to people where I've never been through something? 
And here, here's my point, friends. Here's my point is I, I feel inadequate. I feel inadequate so many times, so often, and that's okay, though. That's perfect. God can use that, and God will use that. Look, for those of you in this place who think you guys know how to disciple people and you've done it before, I'm asking you, look, stay humble. Remain humble to the Holy Spirit. Of course, God has used you powerfully, but I'm asking you to humble yourself and to realize once again that you don't know how to do this, that you need to rely upon the work of Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross. See, friends, this is exactly where we need to be because here's the thing. We need to rely upon the love, the grace, and the truth of Jesus Christ because that's how you became a Christian. Is that not how? You became a Christian because you said to yourself, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to save myself. I don't know how to save my marriage. I don't know how to save my kids. I don't know how to save anybody. I don't know the salvation thing. I don't know how to do it. And that's how you were saved. You, you were saved because you did not know how. And you relied upon the grace and the work of Jesus Christ to cleanse you of your sins, to cleanse you of, of, of the things that you could not repay to God. You relied upon his work upon the cross. You relied upon his strength to carry you through this life, not your own. And friends, the same is true in discipleship. If you rely upon your own strength, you are just going back to the ways of the world. If you rely upon his strength, his grace, his Holy Spirit, he will be able to lead you through that. And so friends, I'm not saying every single person needs to drop everything they're doing and disciple somebody right now, but I'm saying be open to what the Spirit has for you. There's maybe a serving opportunity. There might be people in your life right now that you could think about, that you're praying about. But please consider discipling somebody. You know, in Mark chapter 6, there's this really interesting story. Jesus, before the disciples are actually prepared to go out, before the disciples are actually equipped with the Holy Spirit, in fact, before Pentecost comes, Jesus in Mark chapter 6 sends them out to disciple, to disciple and to do works of ministry amongst the people. He sends them out, and guess what he does, okay? Up until this point, by the way, they're not smart. They're not crazy smart. They're not good people. In fact, up until Mark chapter 6, they're still asking dumb, dumb questions. They don't understand the parables. They don't understand why Jesus calmed the storm. They don't understand how Jesus is doing what he's doing. They don't even know the true identity of Jesus yet. And yet Jesus sends them out, and then you know what Jesus does? He cripples them. You know how he cripples them? You know what he tells them? He says, don't take any clothes. Don't take any money, don't take any shelter, don't take any networks, don't take anything with you. He just says, go. Don't take a, he says, don't take a, a, a sack with you, don't take any money. He says, leave it all behind. And trust in the Holy Spirit. And that's what they do. They go out with no money, with no clothes, with no power, with no authority. They just go with the Holy Spirit. And guess what happens? They do amazing stuff in the name of Jesus. Not because they had the power, not because they had the knowledge, but because the Holy Spirit was with them. You know what it says in Mark chapter 6? It actually tells us that they did such an amazing work out there that guess who heard about Jesus Christ? King Herod. That's like the president of the United States hearing about this church because of our ministry and what we've done. This word gets all the way back to King Herod because they've made such an impact in that community. Why? Because they knew how to do everything? No. Because they didn't know how and they relied upon the work of the Holy Spirit. And friends, for you here today, if you don't think you're ready... If you don't think you're ready to be discipled or to disciple others, think again. Be ready and humble to receive from the Holy Spirit and to know and to trust in his work and to trust Jesus and his work upon the cross. Let's pray.
Father, I know for me, God, I've, I've felt moments of arrogance as well, Lord, and I have to confess that. Lord, there are moments in my, in my own ministry life, Lord, where I've said, yeah, I think I know how to minister to people. I know how to preach a sermon. I know how to do this, and I know how to do that, Lord, and I, and I, and I confess that to you, Lord. And Lord, right now I know, God, that I cannot do anything apart from your Holy Spirit, apart from your work upon the cross, Lord. I can't do anything. I'm powerless, Lord. And Lord, I know that's true of our congregation here today, Lord. There are so many in here who don't feel ready, God, to pour into other people, who feel like they have so much brokenness in their own lives, God, that they have nothing to offer anybody else. But Lord, would you challenge them, convict them, and give them the grace and love that they need, Lord, to see, God, that a part of their own personal discipleship, Lord, in growing as a Christian is to actually pour into other people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give them a heart, a spirit, Lord, to look outwards, to look at their coworkers and their friends, to look at the ministries here at the church, New Life Kids, um, uh, next ministries across the street, Lord, to look at our college ministry, to look anywhere, God, and to see if there are people, God, there that they can pour into, that they can serve. And Lord, we pray that we would truly be a church here today. Lord, would you work in us and through us, Lord, so that you might be exalted, not so that we would be exalted, but Lord, that your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted. Lord, we thank you, God, for this time. We pray this all in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.